Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. As you listen to the proclamation of God's Word, our prayer for you is the same prayer that Jesus prayed for His church in John 17, 17. Father, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. Um, if you would, you can be seated. And we're going to, a little bit later, we're going to cover our scripture passage. But I'd like you to turn back to Exodus chapter 12, um, where we were earlier for our scripture reading. Exodus chapter 12, and I'm going to bullet point what we read earlier because it pertains to what we'll be covering today in 1 Corinthians. So this was um, the Passover. It was a new ordinance established by God for the nation of Israel. This was to be their New Year's celebration. So as big of a deal as our New Year's celebration was for Israel, this was their New Year's celebration. It was a new thing. The first Passover established the observance for all years that followed from then on. Every household uh, were to select a spotless male lamb, one year of age, and they could choose between the sheep or the goats. They were instructed to keep the lamb until the 14th day, and then at twilight on that day, each household would slaughter that lamb, and then they were instructed to use some of the lamb's blood and, and, of course, you've all heard the story probably in Sunday school, to smear it over the um, upright posts and the crossbeam of each home. And then they were to roast each lamb with fire, and in every household they would eat the lamb that same night. In addition, they would eat unleavened bread, which is bread without yeast, for those of you guys who might not know that along with bitter herbs that they would dip in a kind of a fruit sauce. And whatever was left of the lamb would be burnt until it was completely consumed with the fire. And the first time they were instructed to do this, their obedience was a matter of life and death for the firstborn in the household. All right, God was about to pour out His cup of wrath on Egypt, and it says specifically judging their gods, their false gods. And any family that was not covered by the lamb's blood over their doorway would lose their firstborn in that judgment. They were specifically told to do all of this and then to be prepared to leave Egypt immediately. And I think this is really cool, uh, kind of built into this instruction, specifically have your sandals on your feet. So when you're at home, you be ready to leave at any time. Keep your shoes on. Your garment girded in your belt. So this is just logical. They wore like, you know, robes. And so when, when you've heard the phrase, gird your loins, it's they would pull their robe up and they would tuck it into their belt so that they could run or they could walk really fast. Um, I don't know how many of you ladies have tried to run like all out sprint in a, in a dress. It's not easy. I wouldn't know. I've never done it, just to be clear. But <laughs> That's what it means they had to gird up their loins. They had to tuck their their robe into their belt. And then your staff in hand, right? You're about to go on a hike. And then it says, uh, and when the lamb, and when you eat the lamb, do so quickly. So there's an urgency to this, okay? And within this passage, we have several very important themes that are being introduced to God's people, Israel, but also for the enemies of God, also for those that would reject or set themselves up against God. 
A new command was given, something new to observe and to celebrate. That's one of the themes. We have elements of a lamb's body, of blood, as well as the bitterness of the herbs, uh, which actually represented their slavery, the toil of their slavery. And uh, all of these, these things being consumed, being eaten, okay? We see God's judgment and wrath being poured out on those who reject Him, as well as His mercy and freedom offered to those who obey Him. We see that, again, they were to be ready to go, and once the Lord defeated their enemy, they were to set out together toward the promised land in their newfound freedom. All of these things, God's love, His judgment, His wrath, death, destruction, mourning, bitterness, but then you have mercy and life and freedom and obedience, and celebration, and unity. All of those things wrapped up in this one event that he introduced called Passover. Israel would celebrate this for centuries, and in fact, they still celebrate it today. Every Jew in Jesus' day was very familiar with these practices and the themes associated with these practices because, again, Um, Every single household observed this Passover meal and celebrated this every single year, all right? Jesus was actually crucified on Passover. He was the once-for-all Passover sacrifice. His blood, if you think about it, the blood of the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world was smeared on the upright post and the cross beam, just like it was in the door. And that's what we see in uh, the very beautiful picture of the cross. Jesus also became the door. He says in John 10, 9, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. There's that rest that if you enter in the door... Um, you will find rest in Christ. So as we look at the account of the Last Supper in the New Testament with Jesus and His disciples, what we find is in Luke 22, 7, it tells us that it was actually the Passover meal that they were celebrating that night before Jesus' death. In Christ's ministry, these Passover themes were something that He referenced often to illustrate the purpose of His coming, to give an opportunity for them to understand uh, his ministry and why he was there. Again, he's the door. He's the Passover lamb. He's the bread of life. He's the manna which comes from heaven. One such example, if you'll turn there, is in John chapter 6, verses 33 through 34. John 6, 33 through 34. We're going to look at a few verses in this passage so you can turn there. In verse 33, it says... For the bread of God, this is Jesus, for the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. So they were asking for full bellies. They were thinking about, they had just been fed on the other side of the sea when Jesus fed the 5,000. And they had found him all the way on the other side of the Sea of Galilee and they wanted more food. And Jesus said, 
no, you need eternal food, and they still want temporal food. Jesus said to them, he clarified, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. So he speaks not of a temporary provision or temporary freedom or a temporary victory over their enemies. What he's talking about in that moment is eternal provision, eternal freedom, eternal victory over their enemies. Jesus says that He is the bread of life. And when He connects Himself as the one who came from heaven, what He's doing is He's actually establishing His identity as God, that He is deity. Make no mistake, Jesus was the the preeminent Christ, the eternal God in the flesh. No doubt about it. He was making it very clear in all of the things that He did, all of the miracles, all of the things he said. He says, if any man eats this bread, he will have eternal life. So at that point, he refers to the bread as his own flesh. Okay? So for us, and especially for a Jew, um, who they don't, that cannibalism would be absolutely disgusting as it is to you and I. So it gets a little weird there, but that's what he's correlating it to. He's trying to make this point. In this crowd of followers, he's using, again, this Passover imagery, and he's drawing a contrast between Israel's temporary freedom and God's provision for them in the wilderness back in Exodus to, again, what he was offering them in that day and that hour and that moment, and his work that he was about to accomplish was an eternal work. It wasn't temporary provision. It was eternal. He's making it very clear who he is. He says, I'm the unleavened or sinless bread of eternal life. I am the manna of God. I came from heaven. Now, what do you do when you put something rancid in your mouth? If you're about to eat something and it's rancid, what's the first thing you do? You spit it out. I mean, that's just a natural reaction immediately. But if you decide that something is good food, if it's something that you love and it's good food, you put it in your mouth and you chew it up and you eat it and your body, you consume it and it becomes part of your nature. So what Jesus is talking about here is that eating something equates to full acceptance of it. I can't think of any other way to illustrate full acceptance of something by actually putting it in your mouth and eating it, right? And rejection is spitting something out of your mouth. Well, Jesus is using those terms of eating something. You will not willfully or joyfully put something rancid in your mouth and consume it. You may be able to force it down, but if you're eating for joyous purposes, for fulfillment, you're going to eat the things that you love, the things that are nutritious. So here's the point. God became flesh, and He took residence in a human body, and He entered into this world, into time and space, for the purpose of giving eternal life. And when anyone symbolically eats the bread of life, or he eats Christ's flesh, they are willfully and joyfully consuming, fully and completely accepting Christ. Does that make sense? He's saying, willingly receive me, joyfully consume me, 
Take me in and allow me to be your life. Allow me to be all that satisfies you, all that you need. Consume me with the same urgency and desperation that a dying man would have in taking bread or meat or drink in that moment to satisfy their hunger or their thirst or to save their life. In John chapter 6, 53, just a little further down, Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. He keeps pointing to eternity. He's pointing to the consummation of all things. Verse 55, For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, what does he say? He abides in me. He is in me, and I am in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. Verse 58, This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. And he's talking about in back in the wilderness again with the Israelites. They ate the manna, they still died. But he who eats this bread will live forever. Do you see that? Temporary f- provision versus eternal fulfillment and eternal f- uh, provision. Jesus makes it crystal clear that unless you consume, fully accept His incarnation, and you ex- then you accept His blood atoning sacrifice, you will never have eternal life. He says there's no life in you. You can even look, you can look like a Christian, you can act like a Christian, and, and having never truly put your faith and trust in Him as God in the flesh and His atoning sacrifice, and still you have no life in you. To be clear, just so everybody understands, eating His flesh means acknowledging and fully accepting that Jesus is God in human flesh, and drinking His blood is fully accepting or acknowledging and believing that His sacrificial death atoned for your personal sin. You see, up until this time, the Passover, what we read about earlier in Egypt, uh, their, their freedom from Egypt, it was a time marked on the calendar that every Jewish person looked ahead to, to the same way many of us look ahead to Christmas and we get all excited about Christmas or, or fall, right? Pumpkin spice and all that stuff. It was a red-letter day. It was the dividing line of Israel's history. They would point back to that and celebrate it. It marked and commemorated that event that for them was synonymous with all of those, those attributes of God that we mentioned before, judgment and wrath and death and destruction and mourning. But on the flip side, mercy and obedience, life, freedom, celebration, and unity then as a nation moving forward. But at this point, Jesus is laying the groundwork for a completely new thing in His ministry, a new red-letter day, a new dividing line of not just Israel, but all human history with eternal implications. The cross of Jesus Christ 
on that single day in all of human history was God's greatest expression of love for His people. It split history right down the middle. At the cross, we see those themes of His judgment and His wrath, death and mourning that was laid upon Christ, what you and I deserve laid upon Him. But also for those who are obedient, He offers His mercy, His life, and true eternal freedom in Christ and to be in the presence of Jesus, our Savior, for eternity. This, is, was, this was a new cause for celebration and a new cause for unity in Christ. We use this terminology often. I've used it all my life. We, we use the word saved, right? I'm saved. Well, we're saved because we actually deserve God's judgment. In your sin, you deserve God's cup of wrath. You deserve bitterness and mourning. You deserve eternal death because we are all rebellious. We are all depraved. We have all fallen eternally short of God's glory. But because of Christ's atoning work, I, myself, I have been passed over. What I deserved is no longer going to land on my head. I have been saved from that destiny. And the reason is I consumed the living bread. I ate His flesh in a spiritual sense when I truly believed that Jesus was God in the flesh and He entered this world to do what He did. I drank His blood in a spiritual sense when I believed Jesus shed His own blood as a sacrifice for my own personal sin. And if He opened your eyes or opens your eyes and you see your need, your depravity, in your desperation for Him, if you have genuinely, fully, and completely accepted those things about you as well, and you have believed that Christ came for those reasons as well, you have been saved. So in the context of communion, when we take of the Lord's table, you are symbolizing outwardly before everyone that you understand the eternal implications of observing this ordinance. Communion is a symbol of our salvation act. That's what it's all about when we take communion together. It becomes a reconfirmation of our love and obedience for Jesus Christ. It becomes a restatement of our faith. And there's no need to walk the aisle like I have done so many times and rededicated my life. I've rededicated my life, I like to say so many times, I've rededicated my life that my rededicator broke. Like that, I grew up Baptist and man, we walked the aisle so often as, you know, I got cramps. So the issue is this, when you take part in communion, you are rededicating your life anew to Christ. Every single time, it becomes a renewal of that act of salvation and putting your faith in Christ, a testament to your believing in Jesus and making Him your Lord, the Lord of your life. And it's a vital thing that we as the local church share in the communion table together and that we do so properly. We saw last week the early church made it a frequent thing to share in a meal together, a love feast, 
and they would follow that up with the Lord's Supper. It was an outward symbol of an inward transformation in them. And we see also it was to remember the one who lived a perfect life and who died on their behalf. We do it in remembrance of Him, not just His death, but we remember that He lived a perfect life so that He could die for our sins. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 Corinthians 10, 16 to 18, and we studied this a few weeks back, we see that when we take of the table of the Lord, we are communing with Him. We were having community with God and community with our brothers and sisters in Christ, which means He is here in our midst. He's present, communing with us when we take of the Lord's table. I would also like to add that the observance of communion is eschatological. You guys should know what that means by now. It is the, the study of end times, right? The, the final days. And, and we know that when we take of the communion table, we are looking ahead expectantly toward His second coming. That is called the hope of glory. Jesus says, do this until we do it together again in the kingdom. There's going to be a huge celebration in the kingdom, and we do that in anticipation of that as well. But what I want to communicate is that communion is serious. It is sacred, and it should be a worshipful experience in the life of every Christ follower. It should never be done ho-hum as if it's a mundane exercise, religious exercise. Never. It would be better for you not to take of the table on that particular day. When you do it, you want to be fully engaged in what you're doing and understand it. It's, it's a worshipful experience that should be a really important part of every uh, believer's life. We should treat it with proper honor as well as a joyful celebration that unifies the body of Christ under His atoning work, under His death, burial, and resurrection. The Corinthians, in fact, were not treating communion in that way, and that is why Paul, in our passage, rebukes them pretty harshly. So if you will turn to 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 11, we're going to look at verses 23 through 34. 1 Corinthians 11, 23-34. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which He was being betrayed took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, He took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until He comes. You see, our passage encapsulates there exactly what we've been talking about thus far this morning. Jesus as the spotless Lamb instituting the Lord's Supper as a new covenant for His church. Those who put their faith in Him in relation to God's wrath are passed over and safe from the second death, which is eternal judgment. So what happens then if the institution of the Lord's table is being abused or perverted in the local church? What about those who take it lightly, who take it unworthily? Well, this is exactly what's taking place in the next part of our passage here. 
Uh, We learned last week that they were perverting the Lord's Supper. They used it as an excuse to get drunk. They were being gluttonous. Many of the wealthier members of that local body would conspire together and they would get together at the love feast before the less fortunate folks could show up and they would eat all of the food and then when the the poorer uh, families got there, they would not have anything to eat. In addition, they came to the Lord's table in the midst of divisions and they had bitterness toward one another. They were following celebrities Uh, They made celebrities of Paul and Apollos and and they were separating over ridiculous issues. But they also had unconfessed sin. They were just, they were blowing it As as a local church. They were blowing it in this regard. The purpose and meaning of communion was to unify them as a local body in Christ. And that was being ignored altogether and they were doing the complete opposite. They were making a mockery of the Lord's table. And that's why in verse 20, Paul says this, Therefore, when you meet together in the same place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. Now, you need to understand, this is not Paul instructing them, when you get together, don't eat the Lord's Supper. What he's saying is, and you find this in the clarity, as if you look at the original Greek, literally it says, it is impossible that you are eating the Lord's Supper, meaning... You are going through the motions of the Lord's table. You're doing all the right things as far as uh, going through the motions. But because of your hearts and because of your intentions and because of your attitudes and because of the divisions and all of these things, because you're getting drunk, some of you are being gluttons, because you have deprived those in need and there is division among you, because you are bitter toward one another, because you have unconfessed sin, there is no real communion of the believers or with Christ because of all of this mess going on in your church. You may call it communion, but what you are doing is not the Lord's Supper and you are doing it unworthily. Verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. So if you come to the Lord's table with bitterness toward another believer in your heart, you are taking it unworthily. If you come having engaged in sin that you will not repent of, perhaps a habitual sin that you are, that you are taking, uh, then you are taking it unworthily. If you come to commune with anything less than the highest honor and reverence for God, for Jesus Christ the Son, reverence for the Holy Spirit, Uh, reverence for the Word of God. Anything less than that reverence, you are taking communion unworthily. If you come with anything less than total love for your brothers and sisters in the local body of Christ, then you have come to His table and you are taking it unworthily. You understand? The observance of communion instituted by Christ Himself is not to be trifled with. It's not to be taken lightly. You need to understand it. Why? Because to do so unworthily is to be guilty of the body and the blood of our Lord, meaning you are treating Christ's life and His sacrifice as if it it means nothing. When it becomes even a religious exercise to you, then you're treating the blood and, and the sacrifice of the blood and the body of Christ as if 
it was a religious exercise, and we know better, don't we? It's no small thing. His sacrifice is everything to the true believer. So to treat it as an insignificant thing is to fail to acknowledge the seriousness of it. And Paul says that if you do that, you will bring judgment on your head. So how can we be certain then, because I know I don't want to do that. You're sitting there, how can I be certain that I never do this, that I never take it in the wrong manner? Well, Paul gives us instruction. Verse 28, But a man must test himself, and in so doing he is to eat the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. So every time we take communion together, we should do inventory of our own heart, of our own life, the things that we're engaged in, and ask ourselves the question, should I wait to, to partake in communion this week? Am I doing so in an unworthy manner? And if you've got bitterness towards someone, right then is the time to get it right with the Lord. And if it's someone in the local church, then go to them at that moment and, and tell them you forgive them or ask them to forgive you, whatever the case may be. That is how purity and unity in the church is protected. Verse 30, we see consequences of the Corinthian believers doing this unworthily. He says, For this very reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. Now that, that word sleep is, of course, a New Testament metaphor for death. So some of them were weak and sick and actually dying because they were partaking of the Lord's table unworthily. Paul says, Because of the Corinthians' abuse of the Lord's table, they had just gotten to the point where some of them, God just took them out of the whole equation. And you may ask, does God actually do that? Does God actually kill people? Is that actually the, the Christ that our modern day culture is presenting to the world? Because he's all like, he's like a care bear, right? Just one step above a care bear in our modern culture. He's all hugs and cuddles. But have you read the account of Ananias and Sapphira? In Acts chapter 5, they lie to the Holy Spirit. They come into the congregation and God strikes them dead. That's New Testament. That's not Old Testament. That's the New Testament God. Have you read Revelation? Have you read God pouring out His judgment and wrath on, on those who are, uh, who are rebellious and acting against Him? Here in Corinth, the Greek says that quite a few of these members in this church had died. So why did God kill them? What was the great evil that they did? Well, we've learned about it. They had perverted the Lord's table. They had abused the blood and the body of Christ. And so, you know, it becomes a serious thing. Look in verse 31. It gives us part of the, the answer if we don't want to ever be in that situation. But if we judged ourselves rightly we would not be judged. This is something that is a little nugget of, lo of logic, just wisdom that, that I think is so obvious, but we so often miss out on, especially today. The last thing in the world we want is for someone to come to us and hold us accountable and tell us that we're doing something incorrectly, right? That just gets all over us. 
We are not willing to take any correction or any instruction from anybody because in our pride, we know what's best, right? We've got it all figured out. And the moment you say something to someone about something that's going on in their life that may be of concern out of love, often the response is a pretty harsh rejection. Say something about someone's kids, about the way their kids are acting. <laughs> you're going you're gonna to face the wrath of mom or the wrath of dad, right? But folks, the body of Christ is supposed to be different. We're supposed to be able to speak to one another and hold one another accountable. And this little nugget of wisdom is this. Number one, you judge yourself first according to God's Word. You have to hold your life and your behavior and your actions and the things you say up next to God's Word. If it aligns, great. If it doesn't, you need to repent and get your life right. The second thing is, are you willing to submit yourself to be judged and corrected and instructed by your brothers and sisters in Christ and do so with humility and not get your feelings hurt and not be offended? That's a tough thing to do, isn't it? But that's the way it's supposed to work in the local church. And what Paul is saying here is if you submit yourself first to the Word of God and then to your brothers and sisters in Christ and you allow yourself to be judged in that manner long before you get to a place where God has to intervene and take you out of the equation. You see what I'm saying? And it's clear that in certain scenarios, if a true believer engages in sin that they will not repent of, and sometimes that's causing dissension within the local body, then God, in His love for the believer in sin and for the local church, may very well take them out of the local church. Verse 32, But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. What we see here is always an act of love. It's actually an act of mercy when God judges a believer to that extent and it's an act of mercy for the local church because He's taking someone who's causing division, who's causing dissension, who's causing strife out of the local church. Now, me personally, I'm not sure how often this takes place in a local church. I would assume that the church would have to be really striving to be a godly biblical church and do things in a biblical fashion, and then God engages in the midst of that church in the biblical fashion. I think there are a lot of so-called churches that call themselves churches that are not churches. They're just gatherings of a whole bunch of people. But in my own life, in the last several years, I could tell you a couple stories about some things that happened, people that I knew that caused strife in the church, and two of which died in head-on collisions, like just one day they were there, they were warned two or three times, went through the biblical process, and all of a sudden they're gone. And that's happened two different times in, in ministry. God is active in the midst of His church. He will protect the purity of His bride. He sees everything. He sees everything. He sees your heart. He knows the intentions of your heart. You can't hide those things from Him, and He will not allow His church to be uh, his bride to be abused, and he will not 
allow his table to be perverted. So Paul's telling the Corinthian believers that very thing. Believers in Corinth, straighten up and fly right. Get it right. You need to change the way you're doing this. Other, otherwise, you are going to continue to be judged severely. So heed my warning. And then verse 33, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. So just very simple, contextual, uh, pointed instruction for that particular church. Stop doing what you're doing. You need to wait for those, those um, believers who don't have as much, and you need to share out of your wealth, you need to share with them and make sure that they get the food that they need. If there are factions and you're pulling that sort of garbage, there's never going to be unity in that local body. 34, verse 34. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will direct when I come. Again, that first statement, the purpose of the communion meal is not to feed the flesh, and that's exactly what they were doing. They were using it to feed their own egos, their own flesh, and, and flaunting their wealth in front of those who hardly had anything. And the purpose of it then is to unite the body under the banner of Christ's finished atoning work. And, and then Paul finishes. Remember Paul was answering their questions. They had sent him a letter asking him various questions. Well, this is how he kind of finishes up that section of 1 Corinthians. And he says, uh, this Q&A time, I'll finish it up. When I come see you in person, I will answer your questions. So I'd like to conclude this morning together after we've, after we've learned the purpose and the seriousness and the meaning of communion. I would like to take communion together as a local body. And uh, I know some of you are like, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not taking it this morning. I've got some things to think about. But listen, you know... Right now's the time. Right now's the time to humble yourself before the Lord. Seek Him. Ask Him to illuminate the things in your life that you need to lay down at His feet. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. Allow your brothers and sisters to hold you accountable. Allow God's Word to hold you accountable and realign your priorities in your life. And then let's take this incredible ordinance together as a local body and we will see how God unifies us as a local body. Just as there's this supernatural judgment for doing it unworthily, there's a supernatural blessing when we do it together in a worthy fashion. That's what we want.